0: Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place.
1: A Living History production.
2: This is the Living History podcast, broadcasting live across the
0: airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome again to another episode of Living History and like always thank you very much for the feedback you've sent in from the recent episodes. We always love hearing from you, so please reach out to us on Facebook or Twitter are the two main ways you can contact us. And contact us and let us know what's happening in your world. Let us know if you've got any ideas for upcoming podcasts. We love getting your feedback about uh, about ideas for podcasts. And this week we have yet another exciting and interesting episode, a little bit of a departure from the, the hardcore military history we've been doing lately, but I think you're really going to enjoy this one. It's a fascinating story that I didn't know very much about, and I think as Australians we should say that none of us know enough about this story. We're talking about British atomic testing uh, in the middle of the Australian desert in the 1950s, just an extraordinary chapter of our history. And uh, here to tell us all about it is someone who's got a new book on the subject. It's Dr. Elizabeth Tynan. Elizabeth, thank you for joining us to talk about these atomic bomb tests.
2: Lovely to be here, Matt. Nice to meet you.
0: Now, you've got a new book out on the subject. You've already written a great book about the subject, but you've got yet another one out, which is here, The Secret of Emu Field. And I've got to say, um, I, I'm professing my ignorance, but a story I'd never heard of. And I, I think really that's the point, isn't it? I mean, I think as Australians, we would say we just don't know enough about this story. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable that it's fallen through the gaps of history.
2: I couldn't agree more. It's extraordinary. The subheading, of course, is Britain's forgotten atomic tests in Australia, and it has really struck me as a researcher of atomic testing history in this country that these particular tests were so far under the radar and they were certainly overshadowed by what was to come. They predated Maralinga by three years, but they were in many ways, and I make the argument in the book, in many ways more disruptive and more devastating to the people of the area than even Maralinga and caused a great deal of of hardship and harm to, to people in the area. So I think it's time we all knew the name Emu Field.
0: Well, set the scene for us. Let's look at the big picture. What were the British doing? Why were they even here? And how did they come to be setting off nuclear bombs in the middle of the South Australian desert?
2: It's the most interesting story. And it's uh, a story of uh, contingencies, I suppose, things that happen that cause ripples somewhere else. So we have to actually track back, and I'll just do this briefly, but track back to the very beginning of the Second World War, when much of the um, the basic physics around the possibility of atomic weaponry was being developed and thought about and, and worked on in Britain. And that included a number of um, refugee physicists who had escaped Nazi Germany and had come to Britain for refuge and continued their work. And just as the war was beginning, Um, Physicists were starting to publish extraordinary ideas around the possibility of nuclear fission and this led to certain people starting to think about the possibility of of this physical phenomenon being turned into a weapon. There was a, a memorandum that was prepared by two refugee scientists who were working at Birmingham University that was very simple. It was a three- or four-page memo, but it set out the possibility of an atomic weapon. And that memo was conveyed to the very top of the British government, to the Prime Minister. And we believe that Mark Oliphant had a role. He was working over in the UK. The great Australian physicist Mark Oliphant was working in the UK at the time, that he had a role in making sure that people in the British government understood the implications of this. Fairly soon after that, the British embarked on what was to become the very first atomic weapons development and research um, organisation. And it became known as Tube Alloys, which was a deliberately enigmatic name that was meant to sound boring. It sounded like an industrial organisation of some kind. But within that, they did, um, hiding in plain view in laboratories around the country, they did the basic work that proved that uh, it was possible uh, using, uh, uh, using uranium-235 to create uh, a serviceable weapon. Then, of course, the war started, publication, scientific publication had to shut down because it became apparent that um, this information was also available to Nazi Germany, and ultimately the. Um, the ideas, the technology, went over to America, where the Manhattan Project was was created. Now, a carefully negotiated agreement between Britain and America, the Quebec Agreement, enabled a mission of British scientists and technologists to join the Manhattan Project, and it was led by a fellow called Sir. Will- well, he wasn't Sir then; he was Professor William Penny, and. Within that group of British scientists, unknown to the authorities at the time, were some spies. These were physicists who had an ideological um, position that scientific knowledge, physics knowledge, should not be kept secret, that it should be shared. And that they believed that the Soviet Union, for example, who they were working for, uh, had uh, every right to this information. When, and of course, as we know, the Manhattan Project was successful, the bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. In 1946, the first of the British spies was uncovered, Alan Nunn May, and that led directly to US legislation called the McMahon Act which made it illegal for America to work with other countries on nuclear weapons development. And Britain was very wrong-footed by this. They believed that they would continue working with the Americans as they had done during the war in the Manhattan Project. They thought that that would just continue. And they were all set to go. William Penny, the great British um, physicist, mathematical physicist, um, very inventive brain, he was already working with them in the Pacific. But he had to be sent home and the brit the british then had a choice to make would they hope that america would eventually let them back in and in the meantime would protect them in the event of a nuclear war or would they go it alone would they build their own bomb and in january of 1947 the um the decision was made by secret committee of cabinet that they would go it alone. But that created a whole range of complications. First of all, this was a nation, as you would well know, that was devastated by war. It was broke. It had no money. It had very few resources. Nuclear weaponry is very expensive. It requires large quantities of uranium oxide. They had very little in the way of um, resources, certainly little in the way of money. And they also, even though they'd been part of the Manhattan Project, they did not have sufficient knowledge within the British mission scientists to create a bomb because the Americans had kept them away from some of the the crucial parts of, of the story. So... They, It was a fairly, I suppose Sir Humphrey would say, a courageous decision to proceed with uh, their own nuclear bomb. But at the time, there was a certain amount of patriotism associated with that. Ernest Bevan, the foreign minister, famously said, we have to have this bomb and it has to have a Union Jack on it. So it was then up to people like William Penny and others to decide how they were going to make this happen. They cast around for places to test. They decided early that they could not be testing these weapons in their own territory. They initially thought maybe Scotland, um, and maybe one or two other places might be suitable, physically suitable, but that was held down in parliament and legislation was enacted that made it uh, illegal to test fission weapons, uh, on British territory. So they had a whole former empire to, um, look at they went looking, they initially wanted to work in, in Canada to test weapons, particularly at a place called Churchill, a um, very cold part of Canada. Uh, the Canadians who had been heavily involved in the Manhattan Project themselves knew what was at stake here, and they uh, ultimately said no because they understood what was, what the damage would be. They tried several other places they looked all through the Caribbean, all through Africa, um, many, many places. And ultimately, they settled on Australia, rather reluctantly, I have to say. And the very first British atomic weapons test was held actually off the coast of Western Australia in Montebello Islands in October 1952. And that was a maritime test that tested um, a weapon, the effects of a weapon, an atomic weapon detonated in the hull of a ship. And... Britain being a maritime nation, they wanted to understand how that would work. Uh, at that time, my understanding is that was the first time that sort of test had been uh, been carried out. Mind you, by now, thanks to the spies from the Manhattan Project, the Soviet Union had a nuclear weapon as well. Um, so Britain therefore became the third country. Now, I mentioned the fact that they were broke and had few resources. Now, this is... Very important to understand what happened next. Emu Field is a direct result of the fact that they had little money and few resources and they were in the process of changing their nuclear infrastructure as well. So they were they had the Windscale Reactor, which you've probably heard of, later became Sellafield, had a nasty accident in the mid-50s, but this was before then. But they were changing their infrastructure away from wind scale, which created weapons-grade plutonium for atomic weaponry. They were switching to a new reactor called Calder Hall, which was intended to be the first reactor in the world. Indeed, It was the first reactor in the world that made both weapons-grade plutonium and also fuel for um, civilian electricity. And because of the change in the infrastructure, it meant that the output of nuclear fuel was going to be somewhat different to what they'd been used to from wind scale. It was going to have a higher proportion of a particular isotope of plutonium. So the fuel of choice for nuclear weapons, fission weapons, is plutonium-239, but the fuel coming out of Calder Hall was going to have a higher proportion of plutonium-240, They wanted to test whether that would make the weapon unstable and so they needed to do this in utmost secrecy and the the fact that they had to eke out as much fuel from their uranium as they could meant that this increased the possibility of having too much um, plutonium 240 in their fuel. So they also wanted a terrestrial test site because um, they were testing weapons that ultimately would be deployed to the Royal Air Force, to the new V-bombers that were um, coming uh, off the the production line um, later in the 50s. So they sought, with the help of the Australian surveyor, Len Bedell, they sought to find an extremely remote location. Uh, within the Woomera prohibited area, and as, as you no doubt know, the British had been testing uh, rocket technology at Woomera since about 1947. So there was already a large chunk of South Australia that had been given over to Britain test uh, weapons testing. So they, they looked at the far reaches of the Woomera prohibited area and Len located a clay pan. Which was about 1.6 kilometres long, and was flat and could land military aircraft, and that was the um, the key to choosing that particular area. It was a very difficult location though because they had no road access. Um, the clay pan, yes, you could land aircraft there, but. In, in wet weather or in difficult conditions, it became very dangerous to do so. And ultimately they built an all-weather strip alongside the clay pan uh, because they had a huge volume of of traffic coming into EMU as soon as they um, located it on the map. So that's, that's how it all started. They, um, they had decided on EMU even before the hurricane test in 1952 at Montebello. Um, But then they had to make it happen very, very quickly after that.
0: So how many weapons did they detonate at Emu Field during the time that they were using it?
2: They detonated two full-scale fission weapons and then five um, minor trials, as they were known, of... in a, a series called Kittens, which sounds all very cuddly, but it certainly wasn't. These were initiated trials that were very toxic and nasty. So, five kittens trials, but the, the full scale weapons were the totem series. So, there was totem one and totem two that were both detonated in October of 1953, 12 days apart. And uh, in particular, totem one did a huge amount of damage, lasting damage. Um, They both, though, created huge fallout that came as far as Townsville, where I'm sitting today.
1: How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment.
0: It's just extraordinary, the, the, the idea that in the middle of continental Australia, they would be setting off nuclear weapons, and reading about it in your book, it seemed an extraordinary combination of really good science, which was required to produce the weapons and the testing site, but then a lot of guesswork, a lot of unknowns, a lot of it seemed quite slapdash, particularly their knowledge about how the weather would affect fallout and and the nature of the explosion that they were about to create. Is that a fair assessment of what was going on there?
2: Spot on, Matt. That's absolutely true. They had very, very little baseline knowledge. They had not done fallout studies to any great extent from the hurricane trial the year before. They knew virtually nothing about fallout. And I've got to say, they didn't really care very much about it. They were interested, particularly William Penny, who was the designer of the weapon, he was most interested in the performance of the weapon, particularly given the lesser nature of the fuel that they were using. They wanted to see whether they could quickly get to 50 fission weapons for deployment to the Royal Air Force using the resources that they had. So they were up against a certain amount of political pressure and time pressure. They were very mindful of the fact that um, the American and the Soviet Union were way ahead of them. In fact, both those two countries had already started preparing to test hydrogen bombs, fusion weapons. Um, So they were well ahead. Britain felt that it was trying to catch up. Safety was not a a priority and lack of knowledge was not an impediment to the um, British test authorities. They forged ahead. In fact, the emu field site was created in next to no time with virtually no planning and indeed with no warning to the people who lived in that area and who would become, um, would be in the path of the toxins, particularly from Totem One in, on, on the 15th of October, 1953.
0: Well, that's the most disgraceful part of the story is the effect on local people Tell us a little bit about who was living in the area and what effect these blasts had on them.
2: Emu Field itself is a fairly small area and there were no permanent habitations precisely in that area. But as you know, um, the toxins from nuclear weapons spread far and wide. There were many, many Aboriginal people living in the vicinity. I'm thinking now particularly... Uh, about between 150 and 200 kilometres to the north east of Emu Field uh, were stations and other settlements where a lot of Aboriginal people lived around Wallatina, Mintabee, Granite Downs, that kind of area, and um, also off to the northwest there was uh, a mission called Ernabella. Where many, many Aboriginal people lived, also October was the hunting season, and many Aboriginal people were on the move at that time. They were hunting dingo pups, and they moved freely between uh, water holes, so we know that there are lots of people, both living within range of the toxins but also walking around the area hunting so but of course. There was little known about Aboriginal people at that time. They were not counted in the census. That did not happen until a referendum in the 1960s. Um, they had little in the way of political representation. No data, data were collected on births and deaths or on their health. And so in this information vacuum, suddenly the British plonked down in the middle of their country with a highly dangerous set of experiments that um, was bound to cause harm, possibly death, and we believe that it did cause death to to people and long-lasting harm, and um, very little concern. The British were incurious. They, They didn't seem at all troubled by the fact that this was... The homeland of a marginalised people in this country. So they uh, they just went ahead. The only safety measure, and this was not one that was instigated by the British, but it was um, one instigated by the Australian government, was the deployment of a so-called native patrol officer, a single person, one person, Walter McDougall, to cover 100,000 square kilometres to try and warn people about the risks and to get them to stay away from this part of of the country. Now, that's a doomed venture, Um, and it's made more so by the fact that Walter McDougall, who who was a genuinely good person and a heroic person in this story, but he knew virtually nothing himself about atomic weapons. He had no background knowledge about it he could only try to explain the risks in terms that people in that that part of the country might understand and it was very hard for him to do that he certainly did his best and no doubt he did save lives however even people while Wallatina, 170 kilometers away actually were the worst affected not necessarily people who are closer um, so because of a phenomenon that is associated with Totem One called the Black Mist, which was a very strange phenomenon, although not unheard of in nuclear testing or in use of nuclear weapons. We know after Hiroshima, there were um, reports of a black rain, which seemed rather similar. The Black Mist rolled over Aboriginal communities um, about five hours after the detonation on the 15th of October. it was a, a greasy, black, strange um, miasma that sort of settled on the buildings and the trees. And they saw it coming. You know, the, um, the parents were urging their children to dig holes for themselves to, to get under, to, be, to shelter from it. People were covered in this sticky material. Now, these are people who are very much in tune with their environment. They understood dust storms and, you know, fogs and things like that. They had never seen anything like this before. It was a toxic um, and very strange, unnatural uh, mist that descended upon them. We still don't know precisely what was in it. There's some suggestion that it might have been a, a nasty substance called cobalt-60 that was a product from the fission um, reaction um. Mixing with the um, cobalt five nine in the towers themselves, that might have um, there might have been a, that might have been a product of the reaction, and that is a particularly nasty substance. We don't know for sure though uh, exactly what it is because it was not investigated at the time. It was only later, um, very courageous people, um, most especially Yami Lester, who was a child at the time, who was at Wallatina, and uh, he later became. Uh, an activist and someone who fought very hard to get uh, investigations into this. And he was one of the people who was responsible for uh, prompting the Royal Commission that was held in the mid-1980s to investigate what happened. But it was um, a particularly nasty event that almost certainly killed people, although once again, we do not have baseline data about um Of health statistics from that area. But anecdotal evidence is overwhelming. And a lot of that evidence was presented at the Royal Commission.
0: Well, you mentioned the Royal Commission, Liz, which sounds, given the scale of the disaster that occurred there, um, it sounds like a Royal Commission was very much in order. Was anyone ever held to account in either Britain or Australia for this? Because the other part of the story that seemed remarkable to me was the Australian authorities seemed quite complicit in this whole thing. Australia seemed perfectly happy for Britain to come over and detonate untested nuclear weapons on our soil. So was anyone ever held to account for everything that was going on here?
2: Not really. And by then, of course, um, the the government responsible, which was the Menzies government, uh, had long gone. Um, the Menzies government, Robert Menzies came to power in 1949 which and only a year or so before um, the British first approached Australia. So they first approached Australia in September of 1950 um, for permission to test at Montebello. And Menzies at that point took the call from Clement Attlee, who was the then British Prime Minister, and agreed immediately without taking the matter to Cabinet. So that's a well established fact that the very first test anyway was not something presented To cabinet. It was certainly not presented to the Australian people either. And in fact, only three people knew, Menzies and two of his ministers knew about the British Test for a very long time before anyone else knew. And the whole deal was stitched up very casually, indeed. It was not just Menzies being the usual Anglophile, though. He had some ulterior motives. He in in the wake of the second world war he was looking to shore up australian defences by cooperating with one of its most important allies also perhaps even more importantly not long before australia had discovered large deposits of uranium and britain really wanted those deposits of uranium mind you so did america and they did ensue a tussle between Britain and America to get hold of Australian uranium. But Robert Menzies um, saw dollars coming from our uh, mineral resources there. And um, so he, he was pursuing that, but he was also very much pursuing the possibility of Australia becoming a nuclear nation as well. And gaining the knowledge by allowing Britain to test on Australian territory, our scientists and technologists would be let in on the knowledge and we would create, um, if not our own, our own weapons, but at least our own nuclear power and we would potentially buy weapons from Britain. Um, he was, perhaps not asking enough questions at that point because at no point did the British um, pass any secrets about atomic weaponry to Australia at any point. Not a single... Uh, in fact, Ernest Titterton, the ostensibly Australian physicist who, um, for part of the time anyway, managed the uh, Australian Weapons Test Safety Committee, which was supposed to provide safety advice to the Australian government on the tests, He was actually an English physicist, part of the Manhattan Project, very much English in his loyalties. He cut off a lot of the uh, information flow between Britain and and Australia, as was uh, uncovered during the Royal Commission. So, in fact, Australia never got the nuclear knowledge that it was seeking by being cooperative with Britain. It did um, do deals on uranium, However, but as you know, uranium was never the um, economic bonanza that it was supposed to be when, you know, around the time of Emu Field, it was considered to be a, a new gold rush, but that never actually came to pass. But these were this was part of the thinking of Robert Menzies and why he was eager to say yes to these tests. Mind you, he was completely aware of the risks and he was briefed on the risks. I have seen briefing documents on these risks and they're really sobering documents. But he uh, he said yes anyway and he showed very little interest in the dangers that were posed and he spent quite a bit of time in the media assuring everyone it was all perfectly safe.
0: Well it's an extraordinary story Liz and you know a, a shameful chapter of, of our history and one that should absolutely be better known. I mean that's why the book is called The Secret of Emu Field because the uh, the the tests were so covered up and indeed today are, are still virtually unknown. It's It's a wonderful story and thank you for the hard work you've done on it and for bringing this story to us. I, uh, the book is out now and I recommend everyone go out and get it and read a copy of this because it's an extraordinary story and one that we, we need to know more about. But uh, I look forward to uh, reading the next book as well, Liz. It's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful chapter of history and thank you for exploring it. And thank you for coming on the show to discuss it with us.
2: A great pleasure, Matt. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.